I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. I will be speaking briefly with Wally, setting up some of the landscapes of this extraordinary book, for which many thanks to Europa, who are in the room with us tonight, particularly Daniela in advance, uh, making this event possible from the Europa edition side, to the publishers, of course, their representatives and all concerned, with bringing this book to us, a collected essays from 1985 to 2021, really a special volume and an important volume that really anchors in the essay form what Wally has been exploring for 50-plus years on the stage. Now, Wally, the title, Sleeping Among Sheep Under a Starry Sky, is a surprising one, given the nature of the essays we find inside. I wonder if you could set the scene for us as to how that became the title, because it seems a brilliant one. Of course, I know what's coming, but it's, it's a brilliant um, sidestep, if you like, um, which, of course, much of your work has, has deployed as a way of bringing us into these debates. Um, well... Unfortunately, our, uh, the, uh, the man who originated this uh, project or uh, had the idea that I should be published in England, Christopher Potter, he isn't here, so maybe I shouldn't tell this, but he, I, I proposed the title Collected Essays. <laughs> uh, and because my, you know, sort of goal as a human being is to be taken seriously, which, which is, uh, it, I've been really struggling for that since I was 10 or so. So he rejected it. Uh, and um, so I used, somewhat irritably, I picked a title that, that came from the introduction to this book, uh, because I have to, you know, I have to admit that um, although I've, I've in, in the book itself, I am writing some fairly deeply felt uh, opinions and thoughts uh, that to represent, you know, uh, the things that I care about, I, I have uh, my thoughts and my writings are not as well liked as my amusing uh, performances as an actor. And um, which, well, I've only been reviewed for this book once, and the it was in the Daily Telegraph, and the critic criticized me because my essays were not as funny as my <laughs> acting. Uh, so I figured I, I should begin by acknowledging my destiny as you know, being funny, whether I'm intending to be or or not, and being an actor. Uh, and so I begin the introduction by describing why it is that I was attracted to theater. Uh, 
And um, that was when I was five years old, and I was in a Christmas play. Um, although most of the people doing the play were Jews, but we, we still uh, celebrated Christmas. This was part of the, the background that I came from. Uh, and we had a beautiful uh, couple, an English couple, naturally, who had moved to the States, possibly because they weren't comfortable here or God knows why, but they ran the theater in the school that I went to and directed the the Christmas pageant um, and, for whatever reason, cast me as one of several shepherds who were uh, sleeping. Uh, that was, you know, it was kind of easy to do that performance. Um, and there was something about that, uh, particularly the lighting, also the scenery, but the experience of pretending to sleep on the stage in this very, very beautiful lighting. Uh, I think it was the greatest thing I had done to that point. Well, it was. it's hard to top it, really. And uh, there's something about the star appearing and something great is going to happen. Uh, that, uh, you know, sort of set me on my course. And uh, so theater is what I have basically done in my, in my, uh, the course of being alive. So it's, even though these essays, many of them are, are pretty strictly political, uh, my, my role as a public human being began on that stage, and that's why I gave it that title. Thank you very much indeed. Now, you know, there is a, a sense of the act that we all take part in that runs throughout this book, the performance of life, the idea that there's a single self that we construct and then we present to the world. If we have a choice, if we have a privilege, we can choose that identity. But for the majority of the world, uh, a, a performance, a role is imposed on them by the structure we live within. When, when did you start to make that connection between the, 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 the theatre and the act and, and the metaphor that offered and the reality of the life as you started to find it, that you were living and its impact? Well, I think when I was in my 40s, I got the idea that I myself had a role in the world. Before that, I just, I didn't have a conception of myself. I think I just uh, pursued whatever objectives were interesting to me. Uh, but when I was in my early 40s, I, uh, somehow, for complicated reasons, psychological reasons, or I don't know what they were, uh, I uh, began to see myself as a character in the world situation. And as I began to take on board the fact that I, I grew up privileged, I grew up in a privileged uh, environment, in a privileged country, a privileged family, and uh, then I, bec I became, I started writing plays in my 20s, but then in my 30s I became an actor by, sort of by accident, and almost immediately did rather well uh, as an actor, partly because starting at the age of 35 I didn't really look like an actor. And uh, I, uh, I became privileged again, really. I mean, I, I sort of uh, 
earned a nice, some good checks and became, uh, do you say checks here? I guess so, yes. Spell it differently. But uh, I, I became privileged a second time in a certain way. So I, um, I, I began to uh, uh, put two and two together and realized uh, that uh, my that I had a role in the world, and it was a very, you know, uh, fortunate one for me, in a way, but an ugly one, that I was a, you know, really one of the people who benefited from the status quo on earth and the, the uh, oppression of poor people uh, in other countries and in my own country and in the past. And I was one of the people who, received the benefits of all of the oppression that was going on and that had gone on. So that was one realization. And then when I was in my 60s probably and had been an actor for a while, I had a more vivid picture that yes, uh, every, I mean, I became aware that I was playing a part as, a, as me, that I didn't really have to play because when we, because actors learn that, uh, for instance, I played a very sleazy uh, criminal not too long ago in, and I threatened people on behalf of a drug dealer. I threatened the witnesses against him and it was not hard. To, you know, it, it wasn't hard to, to play. And I'm the kind of actor who just, I'm not, you know, I, I uh, don't do the things that some actors can do uh, of really uh, studying how other people are and and becoming them. I don't know how to do that. I just play myself in imaginary circumstances. And it was not hard to imagine what I would be like if life had gone slightly differently. And my job was to threaten the people who were going to testify in the case. Uh, and I, I think that all actors realize that uh, it's all, that our performances as ourselves are a choice. We didn't really have to pretend to have these characteristics. We could pretend to have others. And of course, there are people, you know, who, uh, for instance, actually commit murders, pretend they didn't, pretend to be very upset uh, that the person who was murdered is dead when actually they committed the crime. These are not professional actors, but they fool people. It's not that... I mean, we can choose our identities to some extent. Or there people around us give them to us. And so I did come to see, because I previously sort of realized that the class system, the hierarchical system that we live with is wrong and that uh, actually there's absolutely no justification for, for some people to be well-educated, well-fed, well-housed, etc., and others not. Uh, I realized that everybody, I had a let's say, an ability for a few moments to recognize, to see that everybody was playing a part. And for instance, as an actor, if you're in a movie, in an American movie anyway, you get driven around sometimes by uh, teamsters who are professional truck drivers 
and very strong union and sort of an almost English working class consciousness. And they had their accent and I have my accent. It's no harder to have my accent than to have their accent. But their accent is learned and my accent is learned and I behave like a privileged person and they behave like a less privileged person and it's all an act, really. I mean, they, as babies, we're all the same and we could be trained to be truck drivers or we could be trained to write books of essays or whatever. I mean, I am not one of those people who magically grew up being taught to be a truck driver, but actually thought, well, I'm going to write a book of essays. I, by the time I was six, I was kind of raised to write the book of essays. <laughs> so I, that was, it was in my 60s, I suppose, that I began to see absolutely everybody as playing a part and as being, uh, but of course most people don't, most people are poor, they don't even know they're being forced to play a part, uh, but they are. And they, if they'd been switched at birth, they'd be playing a different part. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, the collection has 15 pieces, including the, the two introductions at the beginning. There are two interviews, one with Noam Chomsky and one with Mark Strand. Several pieces are just a couple of pages, responses to very particular moments. And others are much longer. And the, and the, the final piece, Night Thoughts, is 40, 45 pages. is a major exploration of the themes that have gone before. Now, the essays ran, run from 1985 to 2021. And I'm just curious as to when an idea gathers a kind of head of steam, gets, you know, a kind of shape to it. When it becomes an essay, there are, you know, 13 essays over nearly 40 years. And when it might become a play. Oh, well, I don't have ideas for plays. I mean, my plays are, come out of just, uh, frankly, um, I don't know what used to be called automatic writing. Uh, they begin, well, I mean, as an American growing up in the 50s, we put a lot of stock in, in the unconscious. Uh, and uh, I have always put a lot of uh, belief in the idea that uh, the unconscious is worth a lot and uh, probably you can think of, if you have the nerve to write down what comes into your head, it, uh, you might come up with something better than if you have a plan or an idea. And besides, I don't know how to have an idea or a plan. Uh, or uh, I've never had the thought, well, I'm going to write a play about this. I start writing. And uh, I'm not saying I, if I were to live, I'm not going to probably because I'm quite ancient already. But if I were to live many decades more, I might well try a different approach. But the approach I've usually tried is I just write. And then at a certain point, I think, I mean, I read what I write. And I think maybe this is about something. Or maybe some of this is about something. Or maybe this and this actually fit together and they are about something. And then, to the extent that I have a mind, I try to, I, then my brain comes into it and I work uh, on the thing eventually it does have a, a theme or a, a, a eventually it has a meaning of some kind eventually it uh, becomes a conscious work 
Um, I think anybody who's, you know, would read my plays or, God forbid, see one of them, they would see that uh, it probably didn't really start with an outline. But uh, but some people write, you know, they they really have a plan. Whereas with essays, you know, I've I've known very well. Uh, you know, I have a thought. Mm-hmm. And I I would like to tell people my what I'm thinking. Maybe it will mean something to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know. Uh, so each of the essays is uh, well. The last essay, Night Thoughts, is 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 slightly different. There I'm. I thought. Well, I'm old. My brain may not last long, it may deteriorate, or I may die in a hurry. So I'm just going to say everything that I think I've learned. Uh, Because you live a certain length of time, and we all do learn certain things. And uh, they may be wrong. Obviously, many people think that they've learned things. I would say, you're wrong. What you learned is absurd. But uh, if everybody would write down what they've learned or what they think they've learned, I think I'd be interested. You know, I wouldn't have time to read all of it, but I'd be interested. And we and we all have different uh, bases. Of, uh, you know, I mean, Noam Chomsky, a genius. Uh, Let's be blunt. He, well, I won't generalize, but I'll say that I once, by the way, I don't, we're not pals. We don't hang out. Uh, but but uh, I first met him in the 80s, and uh, I naively said to him, I naively sent him a copy of a play. And I said, well, you know, this play is on some themes that that you might find interesting. And he wrote back and he said, well, I don't actually read plays. Uh, I don't go to plays. And I'm really not involved with plays because I I have certain things that, that I'm preoccupied with and they take up all my time. And that's it. And uh, so he understands much more about life than I do, but he hasn't seen as many plays as I've seen. (laughs) And he, you know, you learn something from seeing plays. And uh, I know that he once, I don't know, do you you ever see the American program Saturday Night Live? It's a comedy show on television that every American knows about, except Noam. Because somebody called him and said, you know, they're talking about you on Saturday Night Live. And he didn't know what they meant. So, you know, he is someone that I revere. And I think he knows a hundred times more about life than me. But there are certain things that I have experienced that he hasn't experienced. And I think that's true of everybody, you know, in the room. We've all, and we live a very short time, really, in order to write about what the world is like and what should happen politically. Really, we should all know history very well. We should all know the works of the greatest artists because those are wise people. We should all have lived with, uh, you know, visited primitive tribes and lived with them. We all should have lived in, in impoverished countries. But no, nobody has time to do all of the things that are really necessary to 
write a book about what they think about the world. Everybody's book is going to be very incomplete. So I figured, okay, I'll be one of those people. <laughs> and I will write an incomplete account of what the world should be, etc. What I think should happen, what I believe, what I think I've learned. Thank you very much, Wally. I mean, one of the ways that many people would have first come across your thought about the world is in the film My Dinner with Andre, with Andre Gregory, uh, directed by Louis Mao, where you know a dinner party, a dinner length conversation takes place, and in that uh, interrogation, shall we say, of life and its possible meanings, the way it's constructed, its challenges, doubts, and uncertainties, we you know find a huge amount out it appears about Andre because you're speaking to him. But we also find much out about the, the much larger structures that govern the world and also kind of motivate creativity and culture. Now, that took a long time to make. It took a long time to rehearse and then to script as you did and then to deliver as though it was an improvised conversation. That then followed with Vanier on 42nd Street, which took many years to rehearse in apartments and lofts until you made it a film, again, with Louis Mao. What is your sense of time and the relationship to creativity? Because those projects particularly took time. Writing, does it work in the same way? Does an idea or a sense of some possibility creatively emerge and then find quite quickly some traction on the page? Or is it something, again, that takes a much greater extended duration? Well, I've worked with this director, Andre Gregory, for over 40 years. And... I think one thing that we uh, really have in common and that drew us together was, uh, I don't know, some feeling that we're going to live forever or that there's, uh, I don't, I, I just had mentioned to a friend that uh, I don't like to be rushed. It's something that I absolutely hate. Uh, I don't like anybody to tell me, look, you only have 10 minutes, you know, hurry. Um, and Andre must be the same. Uh, because, yes, I my plays usually have been written over a period of five years. And uh, one of them over a period of 10 years. Uh, and most people write plays more quickly. And I have one friend who has hinted broadly to me that if I could write faster, I, it would be better. Uh, and, and that the things that, you know, that because, it, because uh, and there's another person I know, he isn't a friend, but not because he said this, but I don't really know the guy. He said, uh, he accused me of being self-indulgent and I think he would have probably there's an opportunity. I don't know what that means, so it didn't bother me that much. But I think Andre's way of rehearsing a play is to take as long as it takes until he thinks it's worth presenting for an audience. And it's uh, usually uh, we work over a period of years uh, that with the Uncle Vanya, you know, we would work for six weeks then everybody would go off and do their different things. The, the other actors and I would go and work in other projects. Uh, and But we would all take out our, you know, date books and figure out when we might be able to meet again. And uh, it, it's a... Uh, it can be a maddening uh, process, but... But there's no opening night and there's no deadline until Andre says, uh, okay, I think we should show this to people. It's, it's, we like it. Um, and the same thing is true of how I've written, basically, that uh, there's no deadline. Uh, I mean, it's a terrible word, as if you're 79, that, um, you know, it, 
it's uh, sad if your last piece gets curtailed or whatever, but uh, I, well, I, I don't like to be rushed, and I, I think uh, I also like, and this works with acting as well and with working with Andre, I like to forget what I did. If I come, if if I'm interrupted and I come back much later to the piece of writing, or even a little bit later, I don't really remember so well what I wrote. And if it's a long time, I don't remember it at all. And that's kind of great uh, because then you sort of can look at it with a certain objectivity. And I think it's true of writing, but I know it's true of of acting, that uh, if you take the time away, your mind is still working. And you come back and, yeah. and there were scenes that really we couldn't do. Uh, and then suddenly they make perfect sense and you can do them. It's quite interesting. But I mean, uh, you know, uh, people who are more prolific you know, they have certain, they get certain rewards for that. Hello, listeners. The London Review of Books has just launched a new subscription podcast called Close Readings. For just four ninety nine a month or forty nine ninety nine a year, you can access all our Close Readings series. This year, we have ones on classical literature with Emily Wilson and Thomas Jones, medieval literature with Irina Dumitrescu and Mary Wellesley, and 19th and 20th century literature with Mark Ford and Seamus Perry. Each series has 12 episodes, so you'll receive a new episode from each one every month, and you can listen in most podcast apps. To sign up, go to lrb.me forward slash close readings, or click on the link in the description. Yes, indeed. Thank you very much. The last thing I want to do is rush the uh, evening on, <laughs> um, particularly given the, given the high stakes that I've just been presented with. Um, so I think it's time, and I'm looking at an extremely advanced technological device here, which is going to be receiving questions from the wider world as we balance those with the questions in the room. I'd like to keep, obviously, priorities equally shared. We have a microphone here, and I think it's time to open up the room to, uh, to questions from yourselves, the wonderful audience. So if anyone has any questions, please make themselves known to me now. Yeah, gentleman right at the back there, and then was there something on? Yeah, no, no, waiting. Yeah, and then one there. So let's keep keep things concise if we can, so we can. Yeah, no, uh, forgive me. I didn't want to be the first person, but I mean, I, um, comrade, if I may call you that, um, how how you, your work is so accessible, and yet also you've chosen some um, modes that are, you know, independent and less accessible. How do we, who want to do work like you do, reach a large audience and make a big effect? Well, right. I mean, obviously, if I could answer that, I, 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 I do want to reach a large, I've always wanted to reach a larger audience. Um, but uh, I've also always wanted to do the things that uh, I find interesting. I've had the opportunity to be on a television program for the last five years. Every, I'm about every third episode I appear. And it's an incredibly popular program people love it and it's very well written and I could not uh, believe me the idea has struck me several times that I would go to the writers and say well I also write I'd like to try writing an episode there's no point in my doing that because I know I could not write that I don't know I mean they're they they have their brains have been shaped for decades to learn how to do that. I, I don't know how to do that. And I mean, I think people who write plays, I mean, I grew up uh, 
when Beckett and Pinter were already writing. And there was a, not only was there what you could call, let's call Beckett and Pinter avant-garde, whether you want to say that or not. Let's say they are avant-garde. The avant-garde was, was livelier than the regular theater. And it was real. So if I'd been born 30 years earlier or 50 years earlier, and the only type of theater that seemed to be around was the regular theater, maybe I would have tried, or not even tried, maybe I would have been able to write the kind of, of uh, uh, a, a more conventional plays with, with three acts and, and the first act is in Mrs. Garfield's drawing room at 10 o'clock in the morning and the second act is four hours later. And I mean, that, I mean, there were, there was, Eugene O'Neill was writing very, very experimental plays and, and uh, Artaud was out there in France. I mean, there were, but I think if I had somehow thought that that was what a play was or had to be, maybe I would have been able to do it. I don't know. I have no idea. But I grew up thinking, oh, well, I don't particularly want to do that. I would like to write like Beckett and Pinter. Not like them, but, but I mean, I would like to use the freedom that they had not to have the drawing room or whatever. Then later I thought, oh, I'd like to have a drawing room. I'd like to, <laughs> you know, do that. And I have tried many times, but, you know, and I did write a play, uh, Evening at the Talk House, that took in a place. I mean, it started in a place and it stayed in a place and it, it was in a place and I was impressed with myself that I could do that. But I don't know, it depends on what your abilities are. Um, but there's no, I mean, I... And I, I've always, you know, I've told many people that I know personally and they've had different feelings about it. You know, I want to be Arthur Miller. I would like to have a play that uh, is meaningful to a tremendous number of people and that becomes part of our culture and that becomes discussed by regular human beings, not strange people who like theater. Uh, but I have never... just have never, it would seem ridiculous to me to try to imitate Arthur Miller because I couldn't do that. And I wouldn't enjoy the, the details of my own writing. I mean, I enjoy what I write, whether other people do or not. That's their issue. Thank you very much indeed. Now, before we come back to the second question here, we're going to go uh, into the wider world. And this is a question from Gregory in speech marks. Now, I don't think it's Andre going by, <laughs> but it might be, right? Going by his, his uh, surname to create a, a, an aura of mystery around the, around the interrogation. But Gregory asks, what is the main feeling you recollect having lunch with Kissinger after Aunt Dan and Lemon. This takes a lot of background to describe, but uh, I wrote a play that I suppose accuses Henry Kissinger of being a mass murderer, uh, but we had a mutual friend. This is, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I don't know. That's how it happened. And uh, uh, we had a little correspondence. His, I think, well, he heard about the play. He read the play. He wrote me a letter. And uh, 
I was, uh, I, and I've been uh, criticized for it. I had uh, lunch with the mutual friend and him. What was my main feeling? Well, I have to, if I'm going to be honest, I'll give you an answer that may be horrifying. Uh, I was, um, uh, let's say, embarrassed that I couldn't wholeheartedly embrace him, believing that he was a mass murderer, uh, because actually, and if you were to, I mean, you don't have to, but if you were to read this book, you would see that I actually am very, very far over on the scale between judging people and not judging people, I'm very far over on the scale of not judging them. I don't hate Henry Kissinger, although I believe him to be a mass murderer. I don't hate him. And I think my main feeling, to answer Gregory's question, to be absolutely honest, was I'm embarrassed because I can't... Uh, I'm because I can't respond to you personally with the warmth that I would like to respond to you with. I mean, the play is about uh, a woman who absolutely adores Henry Kissinger. I don't mean personally she doesn't know him, but she, she idolizes him during the Vietnam War. And, uh, and when I was... 17, I myself kind of idolized him. That was before he was known or before he had met, uh, he first worked, he sort of was defined as a liberal when he was uh, in his early days and he'd written his first book and he went to work for President Kennedy. Uh, that was when I sort of idolized him. Uh, but at that was long in the past by the time I wrote the play. But the play expressed, as well as horror for him, it expressed uh, why somebody might uh, have a tremendous uh, admiration for him. Thank you very much indeed, Wally. We'll take a question here. Yep. Um, if we can keep Question, uh, just here? Uh, yep. If we can keep questions concise, please. Thank you. Yes. I was, um, I was very interested in what you were talking about earlier when you said that uh, about deadlines and all of that. And in a way, I was um, thinking about the fact that a lot of your work is concerned with process over, you know, the actual finished project project alone, there's a great deal of space that is created through the process of making something. And that space is a radical space, not just for the people involved in the work, but also like when you, you talked once about presenting your plays in tiny living rooms across New York and all of that. And I wonder how, how you feel about... Um, the responsibility of creating these spaces through the making of the work, you know, spaces, venues, all of these things are so difficult still for many people. And I wonder how an, it, whether an artist making, writing a play or making a work can actually create these spaces, these pockets of like, um, incomplete, well, how did you say, an incomplete <laughs> but very powerful um, alternate, uh, other narrative or... Uh, within the world. If you well, know I, mean, I mean, a lot of people have, uh, I have not, but a lot of people have really devoted their lives to thinking of how can we do a play, first of all, so that uh, a wider variety of people can see it and, uh, you know, how can we do a concert that makes people hear music differently? Um, yeah, the only thing that I've done that is really unconventional in that way was done, of course, a lot in Eastern Europe in the 70s. 
people uh, doing plays in apartments because they weren't allowed to do it in theaters. I sort of turned against theater as a whole and didn't want to work in theater and didn't want to be part of the cultural package uh, that was presented to, uh, let's say, bourgeois people every fall that you would read the list of presents that you were going to possibly receive, uh, I turned against that and thought, well, I'm going to do this piece, which I didn't even call a play. Uh, it was a one-person play called The Fever. And I said, well, I, I don't even know if this is a play. I don't care if it's a play. I'm going to do it in people's apartments. And it was a kind of confrontation with my own, well, with myself and with my own class. I mean, it was designed to be a confrontation or, or a discussion in a way, except I did all the talking, uh, with bourgeois people, with privileged people. Uh, and I did it for 12 people at a time in different apartments. Uh, I did it here, too, in London. And uh, it's uh, scary as a performing experience. It was about an hour and 45 minutes long. And I had 12 people sitting in front of me. And, uh, and I was saying some severe things that were mostly an attack, a pretty vicious attack on myself. But they got the idea that they were involved. <laughs> uh, so that was you know, a unique uh, performing experience. Thank you very much, Wally, and thank you for the question. Um, a question now um, uh, from uh, the live stream from Lorraine O'Mahony. Do you write longhand, type on a computer, use a scattering of post-it notes, or do you dictate your ideas, or a mixture? Does it depend on where you are, or, or what else you're doing? I, I've, I usually write longhand, and it, but I've sometimes written certain things on uh, a computer. It depends on my my. I wouldn't say even my mood. It's my writing mood. There are certain things that uh, I sort of think. I bet this would be. I bet I could write this thing on the computer, and it would be better. Thank you very much. Um, any more questions from the room? Um, we haven't heard from the room now um, since uh, the question just now. Any more questions? From yes, please, gentlemen over here. If we could bring the microphone over, that'd be great. Thank you. Just, uh, yep, just there. Thank you. What do you think or feel when you re-encounter your older works? Uh, can you hear that? What do you think or feel when you re-encounter your older works? I, I would say the truth is that I, I go back to the old time and um, this is not, I mean, I'm, I'm not boasting about it. It's probably terrible, but I, I tend to think the same things I would have thought before. I, I, I don't sort of, I mean, there are not that many pieces. So, I mean, I haven't written that many plays. So, there are lines that I don't like. And I usually have been able to uh, change them. And so, some of my even though I'm not a very well-known author, there are more than one version of certain of my things in print because I ask to change things and even have paid to change them. <laughs> I mean, there are definitely lines where I feel, oh, that's terrible. Um, 
but the whole thing, I'm back, thrown back in that time, really. But it's interesting, isn't it, Wally? Because that question, in a way, raises the issue which you, you, know, you run with in such fascinating encounters throughout of the idea of the I and the single self that we're, you know, we're told that we have and that we must maintain, as you said earlier, in various performances. When you're constantly aware, of course, this I is extremely porous, it's determining history, it's defined by and, and shaped by history, it's, it's a combination of body and mind, the, the, the other thing that we could call the soul or the spirit that is the kind of creative identity of somebody. There's race, there's ethnicity, there's belief, there's geography. And all of these elements are just constantly at work, wrestling to kind of create something sort of stable at that moment, which could at any point crumble, and certainly years later could be very different. So as a writer, you've run with those themes in all sorts of interesting ways. But that idea of, of time passing from a work to a new encounter with it, in a way, again, sort of pulls the rug from under your own feet about the idea of who that person is who's even visiting that work again. But... Uh... I mean, I'm very aware, and a lot of what I've written about has to do with the, uh, <clears throat> you know, is the, the idea of the self real or meaningful or, I mean, we could discuss that for a whole night. Uh, a lot in life argues against that idea including meeting writers, because uh, certainly I've had many experiences of meeting a writer and thinking, there's something wrong here. This guy could never have written those works. Uh, either there's, I mean, either he didn't really write them or, 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 or the guy that I've met is a total... Uh, facade, or I, you know, so it's a identity is very, very confusing to me. But the passage of time is not a very meaningful thing to me. I mean, I don't find, you know, 40 years ago a long time. Although when I was a boy, if you'd asked me, I would have said that's a very, very, very long time. It just doesn't, I mean, my memories from back then don't feel very long. And, uh, you know, I've, I've, uh, I've been an actor for about 45 years, but I think of it as, as this new weird hobby that, came to me by chance, you know, and uh, so it's, it, the passage of time is not for me the most confusing thing about identity. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Yes, question at the back there and then we'll have one here. Thank you. Uh, yeah, just, on the, just there. Thank you. Thank you. Can you hear me? Yeah. Um, it was just that um, conversation, um, the, the, the bit of the conversation with Andre when he talked about Manhattanites being stuck. Is that right? I've got that right, isn't it? Could when you just perhaps oh, bring it Sorry. Thank Can you, you hear me now? Yeah. Um, and that they don't know they're imprisoned on the island. You know, that, that, I just wondered from a perspective, I'm sorry that I don't know when that film was made. When was that made? It, 1981, it appeared. So it's just to ask you, is life, is the world worse now than what, than then? <laughs> That's the thing. I mean, what's your perception of the way things are going, the, the, that particular conversation about, you know, the average consuming citizen, professional citizen of New York at that time, and how we all are now? Like, how do you feel about it? Yes. To give a background, in this movie where I'm talking with the director I spoke about, Andre Gregory, he says at one point, uh, I think he's quoting somebody. I don't think he's saying it. Maybe he's saying it. Uh, I think he's quoting somebody. 
he says that New York is, is really like a concentration camp where the guards are the prisoners and the prisoners are the guards. Um, do I, well, that was his opinion. Uh, I, what do I think, I don't, I can't tell you what I thought of it then and I can't fully tell you what I think of it uh, today. I, but it, it, uh, New York for me personally is, uh, is more of a free space thinking of the planet as a whole. I mean, the United States is, uh, you could say that intellectually a lot of people are in prison, but relative to the world, I don't personally feel that I am in prison. And uh, I feel New York as a city is, uh, well, one of the least, uh, there are fewer people whose minds are imprisoned than in uh, a lot of the rest of my tragically declining country. Uh, so I don't think I sympathized at that time with the idea that New York was a concentration camp. And I, I don't think I feel that now. I mean, obviously we're more aware today of the degree of surveillance that uh, we live under, but not New York City more than, you know, the rest of the world. I'm sorry. No, I think uh, you meant a larger sense. I think perhaps Wally has answered that about the state of the larger scenario. But thank you very much indeed. We'll, t we'll go to the last question here, if we could, I think. Oh, yes, thank you. Just wait for the microphone, if you could. Thank you very much. I'd just like to thank Alan online for, for your question, Alan. I do feel we, we had a conversation about the process of writing earlier, so I hope that was uh, okay for you in terms of your question. But yes, please, uh, thank uh, you. Uh, yes, uh, Wally, uh, just so that I know where I stand. Could, could, you, could you please, yeah. Yes, just, okay, <clears throat> just so that I know where I stand, can you explain your objection to bourgeois attitudes. Uh, Did everyone, everyone heard that question? Yeah, a, a good question to end on, I think. Um. Yes. Well, I suppose, I suppose my objection, you could obviously, well, my objection <laughs> to bourgeois attitudes is that they're uh, complacent about the status quo, whereas we should all be hysterical. And the way, you know, the way the world was run 50 years ago was, was wrong. And now, uh, you know, it's, 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 there's perhaps just as much murder and sadism, but, but there's also the, uh, the bizarre and unaccountable and inexplicable ignoring of the environmental crisis that uh, it's so bizarre to be complacent about. Um, so I guess that's, the. it's just, uh, I mean, I am obviously, you know, look at me, obviously in many, many, almost always couldn't be more bourgeois, but I have moments at least where I'm uh, not uh, completely complacent and in a kind of state of hysteria about what is, is going on which seems appropriate. <laughs>
Thank you very much indeed. Before we, before we close, I'd just like to draw your attention to two other events that Wally's engaged with while he's here. He'll be on Loose Ends on Radio 4 on Saturday evening. And he'll be in conversation at JW3 on Finchley Road on Monday with David Hare. If you would like to see Wally in person uh, and or listen to him um, following this event. Uh, the live stream, of course, will be sent to everyone uh, tomorrow. You can hear fully recorded and directed plays, uh, uh, The Designated Mourner and Grasses of a Thousand Colours, on Gideon Media, free of charge, gideonmedia.com, directed by uh, Andre Gregory and yes. Mike Nichols. Incredible productions there. You can, of course, um, buy this extraordinary book. Many thanks indeed to Europa Editions for making it possible. And I'm sure, as you will have realised through the conversation and your, of course, prior knowledge of Wally and his work, that this is an incredibly generous work, as we have heard this evening, one that doesn't judge, that is the most radical book, in a way, um, that I've read for many, many years because it allows our own lives as we live them to be engaged with in ways that are not judgmental but open out to a sense of radical possibility and redirection. If I may, Wally, I'd just like to read the last four lines um, of the book just to give us a sense of the possibility that the question at the back kind of raised. It's perhaps still a possibility that we might be able to stop being murderers. This could be our night, and during this night, we might be able to stop, stop, think, and start again in a different way. Please do thank for his conversation and his incredible work, Wally Sean. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.